This is a Triple J podcast. Hey, it's Dave Marchese. Welcome to the Hack Podcast. There's been a lot of coverage on opioid addiction in the last few years. You might have seen some of the docos, especially of what's going on in the US, over-reliance on these really powerful pain medications. A lot of people who take them are dealing with back pain and neck pain, which are some of the biggest pain issues affecting Australians. Maybe you're one of them. What if I told you, though, these opioids may not be doing anything for that kind of pain? In fact, they might actually be making it worse. In a bit, we're going to get into some research from Australian scientists that's making headlines around the world. It's really shaken things up. You'll want to hear that. Also coming up, we check in with Canada, which is now officially experiencing its worst wildfires on record. First, though. Hack. I don't want to take away the responsibility for my actions and say I'm human, but I am. I'm human and I stuffed up in my personal life. On Triple J. The dramatic fall from power of former New South Wales Premier Gladys Berejiklian was one of the biggest political scandals many of us can remember. Remember, one of the country's most popular premiers led the state through bushfire crises, the COVID pandemic. It was revealed she'd had a secret boyfriend, another politician. Then came the allegations of corruption. How much did Gladys know? You'll also remember there was a massive inquiry into this. The ICAC, the Independent Commission Against Corruption in New South Wales, had those big hearings. Well, today, it released its findings and it found Gladys Berejiklian and former Liberal MP Daryl Maguire both engaged in serious corrupt conduct. This story's been playing out for years, so if you are a bit lost, I understand. Here's Joe Lauder to bring you up to speed. When the news dropped about the then New South Wales Premier Gladys Berejiklian's secret relationship, everyone was shocked. In all the decisions I have ever made as a minister or as Premier of New South Wales, my first consideration has always been the well-being and welfare of the people of this state. In 2021, Gladys Berejiklian was a premier. We were still right in the middle of the pandemic and her popularity was high. When the news came out, it was a huge scandal and her political career came crashing down. Therefore, it pains me to announce that I have no option but to resign from the office of premier. It came out that she'd been secretly dating the Liberal member for Wagga Wagga, Daryl Maguire, from 2015 till 2020. They kept it hidden from everyone, but... They didn't know that anti-corruption investigators were listening in. William tells me we've done our deal. So hopefully that's about half of all that's gone now. That's good. Mm. I don't need to know about that bit. No, you don't. Yeah. You do not. The anti-corruption watchdog, also known as ICAC, has found that at the time, Daryl Maguire was up to no good. ICAC has found that he was running a cash-for-visa scheme out of his parliamentary office. Do you agree that on more than one occasion you received deliveries in your parliament house office of thousands of dollars in cash associated with a scheme involving the obtaining of Australian visas for Chinese nationals? Yes. ICAC also found that he was hoping to get a kickback for a land deal in Western Sydney. He even brought some of these issues up in his chats with Berejiklian, who was the treasurer at the time. It looks like we finally got the Badger's Creek stuff done. That's good. Mm, I'll be glad when that's done, because not make it up. We need to pay off the debt. When ICAC went public in 2021 that they were investigating, 
Gladys stood down and there were hearings and she maintained the whole time that she didn't know what was going on. In fact, she basically said she wasn't listening to Daryl when he talked about that stuff. I wasn't sure what he was talking about. I hadn't made that link between all those things. I don't think I was paying attention to the conversation. It's been nearly two years and today ICAC finally released its findings. Um, the report today makes serious corrupt conduct findings against uh, two individuals, the former member for Wagga Wagga, the former Premier. Um, he was out of court. It found Gladys Berejiklian engaged in serious corrupt conduct by breaching public trust, by giving out two grants in Maguire's electorate in Wagga without disclosing their relationship. One was for a clay target shooting range and the other was for a music conservatorium. ICAX recommended that consideration be given to obtaining the Director of Public Prosecution's advice on possible criminal charges against Maguire. But... They didn't make any such recommendation for Gladys Berejiklian. She's responded in a statement to today's news. At all times, I have worked my hardest in the public interest. Nothing in this report demonstrates otherwise. The report is currently being examined by my legal team. Her former colleagues from the New South Wales opposition have today defended her record. There is no finding of any pecuniary benefit to Gladys Berejiklian. The second thing that uh, I would emphasise is that many members of the public will be scratching their head, wondering how someone can be found seriously corrupt in circumstances where it's not alleged that they've made any breach of the criminal law. Today, the New South Wales Labor Premier, Chris Minns, says politicians need to report relationships. But he also criticised ICAC for taking so long to come back with their report for such a controversial investigation. It's important, however, for all politicians in New South Wales and anyone in public life or positions of leadership to understand that we must manage conflicts of interest and in particular declare them. You're listening to Hack on Triple J. Joe Lauder with that update. I want to get into this a bit more now. Paul Farrell is an ABC investigative reporter who's covered this story right from the beginning and he's with us now. G'day, Paul. Thanks for coming on Hack. Hey, David. Th- thanks so much for having me on. Really appreciate it. You've waited quite a while for these findings. This is a story that you've been across since literally the beginning. You've helped crack this whole story open. Are you surprised by what's come out today? Look, I mean, this this is one of those stories where I think everyone at every turn has been in some way shocked or surprised by what's happened. I mean, you know, it, it was a shock when Gladys Berejiklian first revealed, you know, she was um, in a relationship with Daryl Maguire. And, you know, I think it is still shocking and confronting even today to see this Premier who we all, you know, turn to in this time of crisis, you know, described as someone who engaged in serious corrupt conduct. But I guess having followed it and really dug into the evidence, over the last few years. I think you could sort of see that this moment has been building for some time now. And, um, you know, when you look at the body of evidence that ICAC had and that they had assembled in relation to the Premier's conduct, it's not at all that surprising, really. People might find it a bit weird that the ICAC found Gladys Berejiklian engaged in serious corrupt conduct but didn't recommend charges against her. Like, why would they stop there? Yeah, so that's a really good question. I mean, it's not something that's actually completely out of the ordinary. So just to explain it in a bit more detail and to give you this background. So ICAC isn't a body that makes criminal findings against people. It was set up decades ago and, you know, in in various states and territories, it's been set up to root out 
graft and corruption in the state. And the idea is that it's a body that can make an administrative finding of corrupt conduct against any person. And that includes politicians, it includes public servants, and it's designed as a kind of an additional check on power. What it does do sometimes is when it finds conduct that is you know, at the most extreme end of the scale, it might also recommend matters should be referred to the DPP for criminal prosecution. But it doesn't always do that. And in the case of Gladys Berejiklian, what it said was that Gladys Berejiklian had engaged in serious corrupt conduct, but that that conduct didn't quite meet the threshold of some of the relevant criminal offences. So it decided not to refer her for prosecution. Now, that doesn't mean that Gladys Berejiklian's behaviour and conduct, you know, is home and scot-free. It's still a finding of serious corrupt conduct. What have you made of the reaction to all of this today, Paul? Because we've heard from different politicians of all sides of politics, Labor, Liberal figures, and some of them have said the same thing. They've said the process, this ICAC inquiry, the the length of time and that we waited until the findings were released, it's taken too long. The current Premier in New South Wales, the Labor leader, Chris Min, says he doesn't think that MPs should automatically resign because of an ICAC investigation. How do you see all of this? I think probably as a starting point, I suspect a lot of people haven't actually read the report to, to actually understand the gravity of the conduct and the findings against Gladys Berejiklian here, because it's serious stuff. I mean, it's like hundreds of pages of evidence going through in a granular and detailed way, scrutinising and examining her, her conduct. But that said, I think there's some really legitimate criticism around the time that ICAC took to do this. I mean, it's pretty unreasonable to have this sort of Damocles hanging over someone's head for more than, you know, for two to three years before kind of making a finding. Now, ICAC said there's quite legitimate reasons for those delays because of the complexity of it. I agree. I think that what Chris Minns is saying, that there's a good case that, you know, MPs shouldn't necessarily resign because of an, an ICAC inquiry. But at the end of the day, Gladys Berejiklian chose to resign not only as Premier, but to resign from the Parliament. But I did think that some of the reactions were pretty sort of knee-jerk and, and superficial when, you know, these matters that are raised in this report go to the, the, really the heart of good government. Do you think that's because Gladys Berejiklian still does kind of enjoy quite a bit of popularity in New South Wales? Like, we saw her still out election campaign in the state election supporting other MPs. Is that why the response to this has been maybe a bit muted than it normally might have been? Mm, I think that's a really good point. Yeah. Like, I mean, Gladys Berejiklian is a really unusual politician. She she cultivated this kind of incredible public persona. And, you know, during COVID and during bushfires and these times of crisis was a very comforting presence for a lot of people. But I think what this report has kind of revealed is that behind that comfort that people saw was, you know, was in some respects a darker side to the Premier. I mean, when you when you listen to the intercepted phone calls between her and Daryl Maguire, you get a real sense of how she views government and her role in it. You know, the way she talks about public servants, the way she talks about other ministers. It's a very different side of Gladys Berejiklian that's emerged during this inquiry. And people might find that confronting, but I think we have to be confronted by it. It's always difficult for people to come to grips when someone that they admire or look up to is sort of brought under. But we can't look away from that because there's just too much at stake. 
You're listening to Hack. I'm Dave Marchese. I'm speaking with ABC investigative reporter Paul Farrell about these independent Commission Against Corruption inquiry findings that were released today in regards to Gladys Berejiklian. Paul, I want to play you some audio right now from a press conference where you were questioning Gladys on some of these allegations way back. Like, you were the only journalist that was kind of really going for this at this time. Here's a little bit of it. You requested a reassessment of a $5.5 million grant that Daryl McGuire stood to gain a political benefit. Can you please stand back a bit? Thank you. Why did you do that? And isn't that a serious conflict of interest given you were in a a secret relationship with him at the time? Firstly, the the proposition you're putting is absolutely ridiculous. And second, all proper processes were followed. And that's all I say on the matter. Thank you. We've seen the letters that you exchanged. You exchanged letters with Daryl McGuire about this project. You you, you wrote to him, you thanked him for bringing it to the government's attention. Wasn't it a serious conflict of interest getting involved in any way in that grand process, given you were in a relationship at the time? I refer you to my previous answer and please respect this press conference. Any other questions? Wow. Pretty frosty response, Paul. I mean, that was at a COVID press conference. There would have been a whole lot of other journalists there who would have had no idea how this would unfold in the years ahead. Did you ever think that this story that you started looking into would lead to this? Um, Look, the the short answer is no. (laughs) Pretty remarkable, you know, seeing these findings um, uh, that that have been made today. And yeah, I mean, like you said, just to walk, just to sort of walk a few steps back, we started, you know, after the, um, it first emerged that Gladys um, Berejiklian was in a relationship with Daryl Maguire, we started looking at, you know, some issues around the administration of grants. You know, we published a story about it way back in December 2020, and nobody was really interested in it, to be, to be honest. But it turned out that somebody was interested in it and, and that somebody was, you know, was a group of investigators at ICAC who had seen this story and thought, ooh, we're going to take a closer look at this. And, you know, we got a hold of some new documents and then and then showed up and then I showed up at this press conference. As you heard from that, it's a pretty sort of aggressive exchange there and a pretty tense exchange. And, you know, when you listen to that, you know, Gladys Berejiklian sounds like, you know, she thinks she's on totally rock solid ground. But as it transpired, I mean, that response from her was completely wrong. Paul, what's next for Gladys Berejiklian? What happens now? And, and Daryl Maguire as well. What are the next steps for him? Mm. So Gladys Berejiklian's just recently released a statement, you know, saying that, you know, she's always acted in um, in the interests of public. She said that her legal team is taking a look at these findings. One option is that her legal team could contest these findings and, and seek, a, seek what's called judicial review. And that could lead, if they were successful, to those findings being quashed. So that's one option. Daryl Maguire is already facing two separate lots of charges in relation to issues arising from the ICAC inquiry. And it's possible he could face further charges. It's, I guess, in some respects, quite a a sad end to a story that I think really shook up public life in New South Wales. Definitely a chapter ended there. Maybe a book closed. Who knows? But... Paul Farrell, ABC investigative reporter, you've been across this the whole way through. I'm sure we'll be hearing more from you. Appreciate you taking the time to speak with us on Hack. No worries. Thanks a lot, Dave. Really appreciate it. Hack. Canada's wildfire season is now officially the worst ever recorded. It's only going to get worse. On Triple J. Depending on where you are in Australia right now, it might be a bit hard to get out of bed in the mornings at the moment. The winter chill really hits hard sometimes. It's a world away from what's being experienced in Canada right now. It's going through what has just been officially declared its worst wildfire season in modern history. 
If anyone knows what that's like, it's us. Hundreds of fires burning, communities blanketed in smoke. Well, this smoke is so bad that NASA says it's crossed the Atlantic Ocean and it's reached Europe. It means firefighters from all over the world are scrambling to get to Canada to help, including hundreds of Australians whose expertise in fighting blazes like this is unmatched. You know, we know a lot of Australians are going. Someone on the text line now says, my partner's been in Canada working with a fire. He gets home after five weeks away tomorrow. I'm sure you're really excited to have your partner back. Well, hack reporter April McLennan's been catching up with some of these Aussies who are helping fight the Canadian blazes to see how they're going. You can feel the fire heat. You can definitely feel the temperature increase when you get over the fire and when you get near it. And you can hear the, the crackling and that sort of stuff over the machine, which is obviously very loud. So. Flying in a chopper over the top of Canada's wildfires has become second nature for 25-year-old Carter Hansen. The Tassie boy grew up on a cherry orchard about 20 minutes out of Hobart, but he now calls Canada home. And he's telling me about some of the most intense fires he's been battling over the past few months. He's a chopper pilot and dumps water on the flames from a bucket hanging to the bottom of his helicopter. When they number them, they give them like a six, seven digit number for an identifier. And common practice when we call out which fire we're going to, we say the last three to save a bit of time. And this one was named Triple Six, which was quite appropriate for its behaviour and how it was. So it wasn't uncommon to have visibility down to a mile, sometimes even less. Um, and when it gets less than a mile, we just, we don't fly in that. One of the days we actually had to turn around in the morning and go back to base because we just simply couldn't see. It was um, pretty spooky, actually. These wildfires started at the end of April and they've been burning in almost all of Canada's provinces. They've displaced tens of thousands of people. Almost 500 fires are still burning and around 250 of these are out of control. In Canada this year, fires have burnt around 7.2 million hectares of land. Some of the stuff that it's going through now is dead trees that have died because of a different reason, a pine beetle. And it, when it burns through that, it's just you're watching 50, 60 to 100 foot flames come out of the top of the tree canopy. Um, obviously, we're not getting near that. You're not going to do much when it's at that intensity. You, you more sort of work on putting in guards and brakes to help stop the fire in a different way. It is expected to get worse over the summer, raising questions about whether Canada has the resources to fight all the fires. It's been the worst fire season for Canada on record. And unfortunately, it's not over yet because the peak of a typical Canadian wildfire season still lies ahead. Firefighters from the US, Europe, South America, New Zealand, South Africa and Australia have flown over to Canada to lend a hand. One of these firefighters is 27-year-old Andrew Stewart from Gawler in South Australia. See fire raging through the uh, tops of the trees. You could see large flame heights, a lot of smoke being generated. There's big smoke columns, but there's also a general smoke haze in the air. He became a fiery straight out of high school and he's been fighting fires for the past 14 years. But this is the first time he's ever been overseas. It's been quite an experience. Learning all the new fire behaviour and terminology in Canada has been a big experience, but the travel alone and different landscapes I've been seeing here in Canada, so from snow-capped mountains to boggy swamps and thick forests. Andrew says they've been working up to 16-hour days, but there's recently been a bit of relief on the ground with some rainfall in the area. Although with climate change causing longer and more intense fire seasons, 
the worst may be yet to come. From my personal opinion, we are seeing change. We're seeing more frequent stream fire behaviour. It comes with different climate drivers. We have we have quiet years, we have busy years, and but it seems to be getting more and more uh, common. You might remember earlier this month, there were these really eerie, dystopian-like photos all over the internet. And they showed US landmarks like New York City's Statue of Liberty and George Washington Bridge covered in a smoke haze from the Canadian wildfires. It caused millions of people in Canada and the US to be under air quality alerts. And now that smoke is moving across parts of Europe. But luckily, it's not expected to impact air quality. Yeah, obviously, like each time you guys go out, you're putting your lives on the line, essentially. Like, how does it make you feel that things could potentially just continue to get worse? Yeah, it's a bit of a daunting thought. We do see some pretty bad fire behaviour nowadays, but uh, into the future, we've got to adapt and be smart about how, how we work fires and make sure the most the biggest priority is making sure we remain safe as firefighters so we can uh, fight the next fire and come home to our families. Hack on Triple J. April McLennan with that story. Really good to hear from those Australians over there in Canada helping out. Lots of people on the text line who are wishing them well uh, with loved ones who are over there helping fighting these wildfires. It's incredible. The pictures that are coming out of Canada are absolutely insane. Everyone's thinking of those people over there dealing with those blazes. Time to move on. Hack. It's not going to help with their pain in the short term, but make things worse into the long term. On Triple Jack. If you've ever had a back or neck injury, you know how awful the pain can be. Stops you sleeping properly, hard to work, concentrate. Well, some people live with back and neck pain every day and it can be debilitating. And many of those people take strong painkillers to help out, which makes sense, right, when you think about it. Some new research out of Australia has found some of these really strong painkillers, opioids, which are really addictive, might not be helping, and they could actually be making the problem worse. This is really interesting research, and it's been picked up by media outlets around the world. Good to see some Australian researchers behind it. One of them is with us now, Dr. Caitlin Jones from the research team at the University of Sydney. Caitlin, welcome to Hack. Thank you very much for having me. Can you take us through the research? What did you look at? How did you carry out this study? Yeah, so this is the world's largest randomised controlled trial of an opioid compared to a placebo for acute back and neck pain. So we recruited 347 people with either back or neck pain to be randomised to take either a short course of an opioid pain medicine or an identical placebo, meaning a tablet that looked just like the opioids but had no active ingredients. So is the placebo like? There's just nothing in it, like sugar or something. It's just starch, essentially. There's nothing in it. Yes, yes. But it looks just like the opioids. So the people in the trial and the doctors and the researchers didn't know who was on what until after the trial had concluded. Right. So we followed these people up for 12 months to see how they fed. So what were the results? Really surprising, actually. So I think a lot of us were expecting that there would be some effect of a placebo, given that we know it is a strong painkiller. But interestingly, at our six-week time point, our primary time point, there was no significant difference between the people that took the opioid and the people that took the placebo. Oh, okay. So just, just to be clear there, so the opioid, uh, you know, there wasn't what people might expect, um, the, the the reaction, the good reaction of reduced pain. It just didn't exist. 
exist. We didn't see that at six weeks. And even more interesting is the long-term results. So as I said, we followed people up for 12 months and over that 12 months, the difference between the opioid group and the placebo group increased until week 52, right at the end of the study, there was actually an effect that favoured placebo. So the group that received the opioid were worse off in pain severity and a couple of other outcomes as well. That seems extraordinary, right? Now, there have been some other doctors responding to this who say, look, the research is drawing really long bows because they're saying, um, you know, the, the drug that you chose to use in this research is unapproved for use in acute pain and it's actually not recommended. So this is not really a fair comparison. How do you respond to that? So the drug we used is oxycodone and naloxone and whether it's recommended or, or, or not, I'm, I'm not sure, but it is frequently used. It's one of the most frequently used opioids for acute pain. So um, it it's, relates to the real world, how we see these drugs are prescribed. The other reason we chose this medicine is because it has less side effects than some of the other types of opioids we could have chosen, which was important for keeping the study blinded, meaning making sure that the people in the study didn't know if they were on an opioid or a placebo. We've got some messages coming through. Someone says, I'm a pharmacist in Victoria. Opioids are horrible medications for long-term use, fantastic in the short term uh, for some pain issues that resolve quickly. However, when used for things like chronic back and neck pain, they can be so addictive and have huge long-term consequences. This research really has, you know, the um, potential to shake things up. And I mean, it might concern people to think that if they go to a doctor with really severe pain, they might be told, oh, there's nothing we can do and not given anything. What should we be doing if if we can't prescribe something like a strong opioid? It's a really tough one because obviously people present for care wanting some sort of treatment and the clinicians as well want to help their patients. So it's a big ask to tell them to not prescribe this medicine that we think of as being a strong painkiller. But now that we have the results of the OPAL trial and we know that we're likely making people worse, not better, we're hoping that we'll see a change in guidelines all around the world that at the moment recommend that opioids could be considered as a second or third line treatment when other things have failed. But the results of the OPAL trial say they shouldn't be prescribed at all for acute back and neck pain. Wow. How common is this kind of pain in people? It's really common. It's uh, the most common condition uh, in terms of how much disability and loss of productivity it causes at any point around the world. There's about 575 million people experiencing back and neck pain at any time. So it's a massive problem. That is incredible. And opioid uh, prescriptions in Australia, are they very high? Because, you know, people might have seen big documentaries about the opioid crisis in the US, for instance. What, what's it like here in Australia? They are still very high. Uh, so um, people that present for care in Australia for back and neck pain, between 40 and 70% of them will be prescribed an opioid. And that's in spite of the recommendations to use it as a second or third line treatment. And I think it's because we really lack um, many other alternatives. Um, and there's just there's been this belief for a long time that although we, we've known that opioids aren't great for chronic pain, that there was a a role for them to play for acute back and neck pain. Um, But now that's not so certain. What are some of the side effects of taking opioids? Like obviously people are are worried about them being really addictive. What are some of the other problems here? Yeah, so in the short term, the side effects are things like constipation, dizziness, nausea. They can make you feel pretty lousy. Um, But in the long term, the side effects can be really serious like dependence, addiction, overdose and death.
Wow. I mean, very, very dramatic side effects there. How do you think this research is going to be received around the world, Dr. Caitlin? Like, um, you, you would have been getting a bit of a taste of that already today, I imagine. What's the response been like? Uh, we're expecting some pushback because it, it's surprising results and it challenges uh, the way we've been treating a condition for a long time. So I think this is going to surprise people. And um, yeah, we're just happy to have the conversation and keep discussing it. What kind of research do you think we need to be seeing into pain relief and uh, pain medications? Because is it an area that isn't really researched that much because we've always had these things to rely on? I think there's been a a long-term assumption that opioids are an effective painkiller. So the fact that this is the first time we've really, you know, done a conclusive trial um, is quite surprising. But I think more and more evidence has come out to say that medicines are maybe not the best way to manage back and neck pain. So we need to look at other alternatives and also research how to change the healthcare system and the funding structure so that people can access other treatments like physical and psychological therapies more easily. Is there a a big psychological component as well that scientists are discovering in terms of pain? Pain is incredibly complex and I think, yes, it's fair to say there's a psychological component, um, but it's it's more than that. It's, it's really complicated and it requires multidisciplinary care. Well, look, it's a fascinating uh, research. It's definitely uh, blowing a lot of people out of the water and there's going to be a huge reaction around the world if you want to read more about this on the ABC News website. There's a big article explaining it. Dr. Caitlin Jones from the University of Sydney, really appreciate you coming on Hack and breaking all that down for us. Thank you very much. And that's all we've got time for on the Hack Podcast for now. I'll catch you next time. Hack on Triple Jack.